Welcome everyone to episode 13, season one of our Superior Sales Disruption Podcast, which is proudly brought to you by our media partner, Retail World, Australia's premier publication for the grocery and FMCG industry. As will be the case throughout our podcast, I am joined by uh, the marketing and uh, innovation guru down in Melbourne, Mr. Mark Trulson. How are you today, buddy? I am fantastic, Jamie. I'm really looking forward to our interview with Bernie. Being an out-and-out doyen of the FMCG industry, it's going to be a great privilege sitting back and inhaling the pearls of wisdom. Yeah, Bernie is uh, a little bit uh, like that, mate. Um, I've only had the opportunity to to be involved with Bernie over the last four, three or four years uh, uh, through the Joe Berry Awards, and uh, he he definitely is uh, someone who livens up the room. He's um, got a, I'm sure he's got some amazing stories which we're hoping to unravel, and uh, more importantly, uh, you know, I'm just uh, really in awe of the fact he's giving us the opportunity to give us his time today. So, yeah. So, without further ado. Bernie Brooks. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Mr. Bernie Brooks, an absolute icon in the Australian FMCG space, on our last and final podcast for this season one with our Superior Sales Disruption podcast. So welcome, Bernie. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for being here. And we've got uh, Mark, uh, our uh, favourite son down in Melbourne. Uh, Mark, how are you uh, this afternoon, mate? Fantastic, as always, Jamie. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this podcast. So to kick things off, Bernie, uh, we love a, a good old story here at Superior. So every story has a, uh, has a beginning. So take us back where, where you sort of started and, and possibly uh, illuminate us where you went to school and how it all kicked off for you. Sure. So I was born in Birmingham in England and we were then known as what was called 10 pound poms, which meant we got put onto a plane and uh, mum and dad paid 10 pounds for the family to come out because they were trying to fill Australia up. And so we ended up at uh, East Hills Migrant Hostel, which was very different to the hostels today. They were like airplane hangers and you shared airplane hangar with another family and you had a shared toilet block. And we were there for probably four or five years till mum and dad could afford then to buy a house or rent a house. And we ended up at uh, Kasula. So I went to Kasula Primary School and then uh, Hilston Agricultural High School, which is out at uh, Glenfield. And then from there, um, sort of joined the retail trade and, and went to Macquarie Uni while putting myself through uni uh, pushing trolleys and working casually in the checkouts, etc., for the Woolies, well, we known as Safeway then, or Red S, even in mm-hmm. uh, New South Wales, and uh, then progressed through to um, to start a career. But actually, wanted to be a school teacher like my brother, and I went to Macquarie Uni, finished Macquarie Uni, uh, did six months at Cabramatta High School in Sydney. Didn't really enjoy the school teaching side, so I then followed the trainee management ranks with um, with Woolworths Safeway then. And um, yeah, give us a bit of insight. You strike me as an entrepreneur by nature. And uh, you, you, what, when you're a young bloke growing up, I'm sure you, what were you doing to, to make a, a quid? And you know, I mean, obviously you're doing the trolleys, but even you know, um, you know, at a younger age, were you out selling the, uh, yeah, selling things and keeping busy? Well, I got suspended. The only time I got suspended from school was actually when I was selling marbles, which was against the law uh, in the school. So that was the only time I got into trouble. But I always found myself buying and selling things or at least trying to gain a maximum hours. I mean, I remember one Christmas week, I worked 60 hours, of which 20 hours was overtime. And I just grabbed as much work as I could to try and uh, build a little bit of wealth up early on and uh, not afraid of, uh, of many, many hours. And from there, um, you don't get rid of that DNA, unfortunately, as much as you as you get older, you'd like to, you still feel like you're pretty compelled to be working all the time. So you, you started off uh, from Macquarie and then working with uh, you know, Safeway and Woolworths. 
So tell us how you sort of, you, your career then started to take off within so that once, sort of structure. Yeah, so once I'd started, I realised that I didn't want to be a, a school teacher, and I, I still think tertiary education is a great grounding, although, you know, I, I, use, I majored in English and history and education, and at the end, that's still a skill that I, I'm glad I've got. But to, you know, most people say, oh, if you're just going to go and do a trainee management role, you don't need to get tertiary education. You may not need to get it straight away, but you can get it uh, at a later date or do it by remote. But I think the concept of tertiary education is still something that holds you in good stead. It, it teaches you, you know, basic principles, but more importantly, it gives you the real disciplines that you need. And so really happy that I, I did sort of five years at Macquarie Uni. Um, during that time, I started the trainee management program at uh, Woolley Safeway, progressed through to be a liquor department manager, then a store manager at, uh, at Safeway Woolies and Cabramatta, where one of them was called Red S, and then um, got relocated to Queensland to be the head of uh, buying and marketing for Woolworths in Queensland the first time. And the other thing I decided early in the career that wherever anybody wanted me to go, I would go. And even if it may not have been perfectly suitable timing wise from a career or family um you only way we're going to get ahead was to be a loyal um a loyal loyal fellow in the in the woolies group and uh, if they said go to india which they did one year or go to china uh, that's exactly what i did i think um that always held you in really good stead so uh, ending up in queensland which at that stage was still partly called safeway and we set up a um a small buying office at uh, logan lee in queensland and then started as, uh, which was called Jack the Slasher and Safeway, which were the groups that had come together. And Jack was probably the very first discount grocer in Australia where you were given a, a texter when you walk into the store and you rate your prices on product. <laughs> and we were about 8 to 10% in competing with Safeway and Woolworths at that stage, 8 and 10% cheaper, and gained about a 10, 12% market share in Queensland very quickly. And uh, and that were the, they were the sort of heydays of discounters just starting to kick off. And then you had Chewy's and Bilo and Fleming's Fabulous Foods and all the others came shortly after that. That's true disruption, Bernie, and uh, giving people a pen and saying, what's your price? So, uh, um, and, I, and I really uh, I like uh, just taking a quick step back. The tertiary education piece is really valuable because I think, um, and I actually use sport as a little bit of an analogy that, you know, when you play sport and you, you, you know, as it teaches you discipline, it teaches you uh, a commitment, it teaches you um, how to win, how to lose, and, and, and certainly respect and tertiary education and fo following that through no matter what you do and what you do after is a key background or backbone to you as a person. And the circumstances might not allow you to do it straight away, yep. either financially or maybe a family situation, but you've always got the opportunity to come back and do it. I know many people that went straight out of um, school to retail trade and then went back and did a master's or did a couple of night courses. And, and I think there's many ways to, to gain that, um, that intellectual property of a tertiary education. Now, finding your why or your purpose is, a, is one of the big things that uh, consultants are pushing at the moment. And it seems like retail's always been in your blood, Bernie. Is, is it, has, it, has that driven your purpose in life or, or as sort of um, or working within Woolies has sort of guided you along the way? Yeah, I've been fortunate to have the um, what I would call the protection of big organisations, um, and so that that does hold you in pretty good stead. And I think it's significantly easier. It's only been the last sort of few years where I've started to um, move away from big, large organisations. But early on, the the structure, the success, the uh, the education, training, 
the advancement of a large organization is, is always very attractive, but I was driven by wanting to climb the corporate ladder and be successful. I mean, uh, mum and dad were very, very hard workers, uh, but process workers. I mean, dad's first job when he arrived here was um, was working for Ingham's Chickens, plucking chickens at the Casula factory. And, uh, and I was uh, quite proud to tell him one day when I was appointed to the board of Ingham's, um, with Mick McBard that, um, that I was now part of the guys that were running the business and he was very proud of that but I'd also add that um, I was very much driven by success even if it meant sacrificing things along the way and wanted to climb that corporate ladder and wanted to be successful however I'd say that you always think you've got a ceiling you want to get to I just wanted to be a team buyer then I wanted to be a merchandise manager then I wanted to be a general manager and then I wanted to be a chief general manager and I wasn't at any stage that I said I want to be the managing director of a company or I want to run a company or own a company, you seem to stepping stone in life and not realise that you can continue to move ahead and you become quite ambitious for a step, step at a time. So I progressed through from the Woolies in Queensland days, which became Woolies, Safeway and Jack the Slash were all rolled into one, to, um, to then went to Victoria for a period of about three years to be the ops chief for, um, for the Safeway business there and helped with the integration of Woolworths and Safeway together. Then went back to Queensland to run uh, the Queensland business as chief uh, general manager. And then eventually ended up in the corporate office at uh, Unora and Norwest with the, with the Woolies Group. So you mentioned that you travel and you, you certainly recommend, or you, you certainly had a bit of a mantra that any opportunity that came your way to, to grab that and to, uh, and even if it wasn't the right timing. Um, can you reflect on a story where it wasn't maybe the right timing, but you, you look back and go, hey, if I didn't do that then, I might not be where I am today? Sure, so Woolies uh, had announced a joint venture with the Tata Group in India. And, uh, and Tata were, was of course the, one of the largest, if not the largest groups um, throughout India. And as you know, a, a burgeoning sort of middle class in India with enormous opportunity, and it was to build a business that was called Chroma, C-R-O-M-A, which was the, and ended up being the largest um, electronic store. Think of, um, think of probably closer to Harvey Norman. And so I ventured over there with a group of a few people, set the business up. It's a tough place. It's a tough environment. Um, it's, from an Indian point of view, it's not the most pleasant place to live. And early on, I thought, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to do the hard yards or come back to the comfort of turning on the TV and watching the footy compared to watching Bollywood movies in, um, in Mumbai or, or Delhi or Bangalore. And at the end of the day, it was, um, it, I now look back and think what an enormous learning it was. I, I actually started with nothing. So we needed contracts, we needed property, we needed uh, pricing policies, we needed to set up um, with the major Sony and Samsung suppliers. We needed uh, to get a recruiter, a CEO and an entire team and that was a, an immense education of starting with zero. And then when we left, we had a couple of stores open and, and 30 and 40 stores. It was only recently that Woolworths actually sold the, their share of that business back to Tata. But a good example where you feel reticent about getting out of your comfort zone, uh, particularly in this case, it was a different country. It was a different environment with no infrastructure. Uh, but I look back now and it certainly held me in good stead. And, and the main learnings from it were cultural differences and also the legal aspect of retail and the property aspect that you, uh, uh, that you gain an enormous amount of, um, of background and knowledge with. And Mark, uh, you've got to say that that's true disruption, mate, in its purest form, uh, taking yourself over there and, and, uh, and, and helping start from scratch. But uh, um, Bernie, uh, 
some of the people, and you've obviously had met some interesting people along your way, and uh, um, any uh, mentors uh, or advice that was given to you uh, uh, that still resonates and that you, you can pass on to the listeners as turning points? Yeah, I mean, I've been very fortunate to have access to and work with some phenomenal people that have left uh, an indelible sort of ink on my thought process, thinking, ethics, morals, and, and DNA. And a couple that, that do come to, to light, I think, Rich Clares, which was uh, you know, one of the very best um, CEOs that Woolworths had initially in Queensland and then as group CEO. And, Woolworths, uh, and Rich was a fantastic marketer. He was a great sportsman, great marketer, just had his 80th birthday. Reg, still going well. And, uh, and Reg really did um, send a, a memorable impression that you, if you're going to do anything, you do it well and you do it professionally and you market the company well. And I think that was the sort of, went into my filing cabinet. And I always think that the people you meet along the way put things into your filing cabinet that you might not use straight away, but you might use later on and you you remember them. And that's that immediately with Reg. And then people like Paul Simons, who uh, joined Woolies in the 80s uh, from Franklin's and uh, when Woolies was in a diabolical trouble, sort of uh, um, financial trouble, struggling and, and potentially going into receivership. and turned that business around and then Harry Watts joined him later on. But I've never met a man that was so strong in his ways of cost control. And he he taught all of us that you thought you couldn't get any tougher on costs, yet you learned to get tough on costs. And I find myself using some of the phrases and terminologies that Paul Simons uh, did. I remember he used to, when he'd go out to stores uh, to save money, he'd use the back of his cigarette packets and leave you a couple of notes on the back of the cigarette packets <laughs> and leave them on your desk the following day. About where he'd found a store that wasn't the best. He'd want to use paper and he'd want to use pens, but he was a he was a lean guy and he really knew how to um, how to control costs. And I think then the the third probably the third person I had access to was a, a chap that passed away a few years ago called Jack Schumacher, and he was one of the the um, the few founders of Walmart. And him and Sam Walton, he was the first sort of president of Walmart. And I had two opportunities to go and spend time in Bentonville working with the Walmart Group, and Jack took us around stores. And Jack was fantastic at understanding um, how to sell, but more importantly, about what the DNA and the culture of a company needed to be. And, you know, Jack used to have a motto. He said, there's only two common denominators in retail life, the quality of the people and the speed at which you do things. And that still holds very strong. And, uh, and rest in peace, Jack was a, a fantastic retailer that was very, very well respected through the United States. And, um, and so what you end up doing, I think, is, is securing little snippets, um, you know, uh, ethical watermarks and views from people that you then find, you might not use them straight away, but you never forget them. And you then find yourself doing the same thing and smile and think, well, that was something that I got taught by Reg or I got taught by, by Jack or I got taught by Paul Simons. Now, you talked about some doings of our industry just there, uh, and you've obviously led some great teams yourself. So what are some of your philosophies on building and managing a team? Yeah, I... I think it's it's getting harder because of the nature of, let's call it the, the social fabric today, where things happen a lot quicker. There's a lot more dynamics. Communication is a lot more complex because it's such a multitude of different ways. But I do believe that if you want to be successful as a team leader and earn the respect of the people that work with you and the peers, then you have to first to be a good communicator the second is you've got to be quite creative 
particularly in finding solutions to things because it's a complex world and I think you've got to find a creative solution and you need a lot. Of, if you just think for a moment about somebody that you know, you know, sp spreads a few lies or someone that you know that exaggerates on things, you can't respect them as well. So you need to have that integrity. You need to have that creative creativity. You need to have that communication. Um, and ideally, you need to have that ability to work individually at times, particularly when things are tough, or work within a team environment. And you've got to have the light and shade. And finally, remember that each person as an individual are quite different. So you can't teach your team um, and be with your team and manage them all the same way. Some are more fragile, some are more tough, some just want to be told directly. And so you need to dial up and dial down. When you're walking through a warehouse, talking to a guy, um, putting a pallet together, compared to sitting opposite a sales director of a large company, you have to learn to dial up or dial down and be you know, quite suitable and, and, and specific to that situation. And they've been the sort of mantras as, as the world's been disrupted that I've found have sort of held me in pretty good stead, um, no matter which part of business and which country I've been in. Yeah, that um, you refer to that, Bernie, and I call that sort of situation, you know, we just actually spoke about this in, a, uh, in our last week's podcast of uh, situational leadership. So you actually got to adapt to the situation. Uh, you can't, not all, you know, not one shoe fits all. Um, everyone has a different personality. Everyone has a different, you know, need and a want. And um, it's really critical as a, a senior leader. You've got to got to be able to adapt to that and uh, um, yeah I, I guess just on you know, with the mentoring piece and again with such a distinguished career um, have you actually found uh, some of the young ones that have worked for you a bit of reverse mentoring at any stage where uh, you know, you've taken something off them that's been quite interesting you know, to, for the feedback or the the learnings that you, know, you see from the young ones today yeah, it's a great question because um, if you think it's all going to be a one-way street then you're so very wrong because mm. ideally, um, as the world changes, I mean, and let's let's just take something like um, social media and let's call it skills on a PC. And what happens is because you grew up with doing presentations on things like acetate overhead projectors, and you grew up where a mobile phone was a big brick. Um, I find often, quite often, I found myself being reverse mentored in social media, in podcasts, in um, how this works, how you communicate, um, you know, quitter from people that I've mentored. And I have about three or four mentors to one we're overseas now and I catch up with them by Skype once a month, we have a sort of rule. And you talk to them and see how they're going and how their career's passing. But quite often I found that they're sort of talking to me about the latest technology or have you downloaded this app or are you using this? And so, yeah, I think you, if you think you're not going to learn something from the people you're mentoring, then I think A, you're selfish, and B, you're going to be quite cocooned going forward. So it works both ways for sure. In terms of uh, leadership, uh, a measure of great leadership is um, leaders who have come you know, post your tenure. And I look at, say, the AFL and someone like Alistair Clarkson has, you know, if there's probably six or seven coaches in the AFL who have learned their, their uh, leadership underneath Alistair Clarkson. Are, are there some people out there that, who you've mentored or who've worked under you have gone on to bigger and better things? Yeah, I've been really pleased to watch a number of individuals from a career point of view that I've started with maybe perhaps running a Safeway store in Victoria. It's now the head of the um, ATO small business or someone that's running a, it was our impact manager in Victoria uh, that's now sort of COO of a, a large pharmaceutical company and someone that was a, a salesperson in um, media 
that's now running an, an overseas business. And people such as Greg Ferran, where I uh, was grabbed him from uh, New Zealand, uh, brought him in, worked with him, and then he went on with a lot bigger and better things running Walmart in the United States. And probably a great example of someone you can have a bit of an impact on, but then let them go because they're a, a sort of butterfly that can go and even uh, go ahead and, and potentially outfly you. And I think that's fantastic. So, yeah, I think there are a number of people that you can say I played a role, but ultimately the individual crafts their own future. All you can do is remove some of the boom gates for them. And um, yeah, as part of that, uh, you, what would you say is your career highlight if you were to look back, um, Bernie? Uh, I think the success of uh, bringing the Woolworths organisation together um, as one from individual state operations in 99 to about 2005. And that was called Shared Services then and Project Refresh. And it was a phenomenal and a significant change that had occurred. Now, you, you may recall the Coles had undertaken that change a few years before Woolworths and Woolworths were the last to move out of the state-based operations into yep. the centralised structure. Yep. And this was a difficult time. And I remember the first four or five months missing budget quite significantly. But then after we got it right, we had some stellar big years at Woolworths and Roger Corbett was running Woolies at that stage. And that shared service set up or Project Refresh where we took significant cost out, re-engineered the supply chain and restructured the business to take the best people into senior category managers, category managers. But also I thought it was a successful period because we were, I'll use the word fair income at introducing full category management and, tr and category plans with our FMCG uh, trading partners. Yep, we were tough on trading terms and set up harmonization of trading terms and centralized trading terms. But at the end of the day, what we also did was worked deep and hard with companies such as Nestle and Coca-Cola and worked hard on developing category plans. And, and that I thought was the sort of the starting blocks for true category management. Now I know a lot of it sort of disappeared today as it's become a little bit more tougher to do business. But that was probably the career highlight for me, the establishment of shared services and then the, the setup of working with and, and working in unison with many of our, our trading partners. More recently, now, I love how you, I love how you uh, highlighted that period because for many of us, that was sort of the golden period where it was actually fun, you know, as a supplier working with a retailer to build, you know, innovation and NPD. And it seems like whoever you speak to now, they do talk about how it's a lot tougher and how there isn't a lot of room to, you know, to disrupt or to innovate. If you could give advice to both suppliers and retailers now, how would you encourage them to collaborate to enhance value? I think the biggest difference today is the role that private label plays because retailers were working in unison with FMCG manufacturers. The biggest single difference is retailers are now brand sellers and therefore they're competing um, so whether it's a Kellogg's, a Mars, a Coca-Cola, there's private label product that, you know, 25% average of the business. And so they're competing with them. So retailers who used to be, who used to see their suppliers as the ones that would provide them with category growth, category management, assist them with data, understanding the market. Now there's a, both have a selfishness because the retailer doesn't necessarily want to share private label plans and wants private label to outsell them. And the manufacturer doesn't necessarily want to share new product development plans because suddenly they'll find it in a private label in the store. And so that, that single change in the role and the, and the functionality of private label and the arrival of 
Aldi and Costco, which even accelerates that more, means that the biggest difference is you're, to some extent, you're sleeping with the enemy when you're working on a category plan. And, and I'm not sure whether it will ever reverse back uh, to the, the fortunate environment and the fun, as, and I think it's a great word you've used, the fun environment that we had in, in 2000 to 2006. Yeah, that's a, it's a key one because even, um, you know, it's one of the questions that we had on the Joe Berry uh, just recently is the, uh, you know, uh, the survival, you know, generics and uh, generic branding and uh, how big are they going to become? I mean, their forecasting is supposed to be 40% or something like that. So, uh, so Bernie, um, uh, you yeah, know, obviously uh, a fairly long stint with Woolworths and, uh, um, and back to your younger days. And uh, what, what was the, uh, what motivated you, inspired you to, to take the leap and, and head over to Meyer uh, when you did? I'd like to say it was something more than it actually was, but but what had happened, it was February 06, uh, Roger Corbett had announced that he was retiring. James Strong, uh, who's no longer, um, who passed away a few years ago, was the chairman. And I'd had talks to them about uh, taking Roger's place, but so had Michael Luscombe. And so at the end, the Guernsey went to Michael Luscombe. And great for Michael, and it was great for the company, and it was probably the right decision. But I then had to make a call myself. I'd been 28 years at Woolies. I'd worked in most states across most businesses, operations, buying. And I asked myself whether I was going to be the two I see again for another five to 10 years or whether I wanted to venture out and do something different and learn something new before I get a little bit too old for it. So fortuitously, at that stage, I was talking then to a guy, Bill Wavish, who was used to be the CFO at, uh, at Woolies. And he was working with private equity and then we came and did the bid for Meyer and Bill then became a great um, support and mentor as the chairman of Meyer. And I then took over as, um, as the CEO of Meyer once the transaction had, had occurred. And although it was a different area, you know, you're learning fabrics, you're learning cotton, you're learning material, learning fashion trends and colours and style and a very different, uh, a slower process, the principles of range, price, promotion, store standards, customer service were the same. And actually, I was quite comfortable that I could add some value to the my business. And when we bought it, uh, which was June 06, it had lost $66 million that year. And then we IPO'd it for um, making over sort of $280 million. And it was a, a runaway success for the sellers. Uh, Myers had a tough time since that. Uh, but there's no doubt, um, you know, the four or five years there were probably the, the most rewarding and enjoyable time of my life. And and met some new people and learnt a, a lot more schools, uh, skills to, um, to go forward. Um, do I think I would have enjoyed staying at Woolies? Probably not, I think, because post-06, you've got Aldi, Costco, online. You've then got the disruption that was occurring at Woolies with private label. And so it, it became a pretty tough time for both Woolies and Coles and still is. And so to some extent, um, you know, probably fortunate to get out and go to Meyer at that time and have five good years there. And so uh, and I'd, I'd definitely do that again. So your period at Maya was a, an amazing success. It also sort of um, coincided with the rise of major disruption retail, being like Amazon and others. You know, can you sort of tell some of the listeners some of the conversations you were having as you're seeing some of these disruptions come to play? Yeah, I think everybody's really smart with hindsight and talks about how big online's going to be and I think you know our conversations were we need a website uh, we need to improve the quality of um, distribution to the direct to the customer the concept of, um, of of b2c in a department store 
was hard because you haven't got a standard range. I mean, the dresses change every year, the belts, the shoes change every year. So there's no Coca-Cola and Mars bars, no standardized range. So it was a lot more complex to build a significant online offering. And, and yet um, we went about doing that and we, we launched it. And it got to, I think before I left, about 5 or 6% of store sales and it's up at about 9 or 10% now. And it was successful. I think there were some learnings. The, the biggest thing I underestimated was the fact that um, the fulfillment side of it is so much more complex and underestimated by most retailers today. I think and the second thing is the role that online was playing as a true omni-channel environment in getting people back into the stores. Uh, but you, you saw it for an opportunity to sell stuff to customers online where it was a lot more than that. And it took, us a, it took me a long time to come to grips with it. Um, and it took me a long time then to understand that you know, this was very early days of online. And uh, it, you were making a lot of mistakes and underestimated. You, know, you were trying to sell things for $2 with direct profitability, meant you didn't make money out of it. So there was a lot of learnings going on. There was a lot of failed um, websites. There was a lot of issues with um, um, integrity and pricing in, off, in online. People forget that online as we know it today is a pretty well old machine. The reality is early on, there was a lot of miscues, a lot of mistakes, and a lot of money spent in the wrong direction on the wrong things. And um, yeah, to that point that it is a lot more sophisticated now um, and it is becoming a true disruptor within in the space. Um, um, obviously, we still are generally as a society are bricks and mortar. We, want, we have that nature of still wanting to go to store. Can you see, you know, in the five, ten years' time yeah, that the online presence is really going to shake up in the digital world, you know, your Amazons and the likes? Do you think you're going to make, make it here? I have quite a contrarian view to, to what you read today. And in fact, uh, I was really pleased uh, last month at the World Retail Congress, which I, I sit on the organising panel and the grand jury for announcing the winners. And it was fascinating that some of the startup companies that we had awarded previously were now defunct. And so I think there's still this enormous dynamics to go in that online space, and particularly pure play operators now moving into buy bricks and mortar, e.g. Amazon being um, probably the best example. So I think this, uh, everybody, the one change that occurred in the presentations last month in Amsterdam was a good portion of them were talking about a, a maturity of direct online sales and coming back now to needing bricks and mortar. And, you know, you would read, you know, the death of bricks and mortar retailing sort of four or five years ago, people were talking about it. Even if you look at the best country in the world for, say, online sales like Korea, it gets to about 16 to 18%. The UK at about 11 12%. The US just on double digit. Australia between 8 and 10 um, th There is a levelling out. And if you look at the annual reports in Australia of all the major retailers, you can see that the 40 50 100% growth they were getting in online is now 10%, 12%, 8%. What's happening is their online growth is not compensating for the deterioration of bricks and mortar growth. And so what, was, what we'll probably see is that 10 to 15% level of online sales, 85% bricks and mortar with a high combo between the two of them. But I think the, the concept of everybody buying online in years to come, and uh, I think is, is going to be quite, um, quite wrong. I think what we'll see is, um, I won't say the rebirth of traditional bricks and mortar, but people are now realising, even Amazon, that it needs to be an important part of the go forward. And sure, there'll be the levelling out of the rents and sure, there'll be the levelling out of the services provided. But at the end, I think water's probably starting to find its, its own level. 
The second part of your question, though, is even more interesting in regard to the digital world. And, and it's funny, we're just going through a tender for a business that I chair at Flannery's, which is an organic food business. Think of Whole Foods. And, um, and all of that advertising tender is on digital marketing. There is no traditional uh, press, TV, radio marketing. It's all done um, through a digital environment. And I think that's where the biggest uh, change is going to occur. It's the way in which you communicate to customers and market to customers rather than through the way you, you buy stuff. Which will be your uh, Facebook ads and your, uh, po you know, your, your um, boost, boost ads and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's so true. Interesting, interesting thinking there. Like, I mean, there will be a leveling out. I, I totally agree with that. Um, and I do think um, even though the large, we do know that certainly the smaller format store is coming to life quite quickly. Uh, particularly in your your build up zones like your CBDs and your uh, um, your, your real uh, your quite quite urbanly dense areas. So, you know, I think the bricks and mortar will always be there. It might be just be the size uh, size of them and and uh, and how that how they stay. Yeah, great great point, Jamie. I think people forget that because you can seamlessly move from online to in store, and because people don't necessarily want the large choice. And I think Aldi's a great example of that. The, the smaller footprint of store with a much greater turnover at a lower rent is the most attractive proposition in uh, in Europe and now becoming the most attractive proposition in Australia. And if you look at the US, because of the, the lower cost of, of, of land, and particularly for shopping centres, we're still seeing the big stores being open. But even Walmart are, are building less superstores now than what they're building of traditional uh, what they call market plate markets, uh, markets, and I think that's going to be the case. And there's some exceptionally good examples of convenience stores in the middle of Sydney and the middle of Melbourne that have the name Woolies and Coles, where previously that was managed by 7-Eleven or 7-7, and they've taught the market how to do express, fast, um, convenient retailing. And it took Woolies and Coles far too long, in my view, to get into that space and, and learn that it was going to be the it was going to be part of the future. Now, you talked about Amazon and um, you talked about Whole Foods and obviously with Amazon taking over Whole Foods, which is probably a business that I've admired nearly as much as any business that I've seen. Um, are there, what are other areas that you can foresee that retailers can, you know, from a bricks and mortar perspective, look towards the future and differentiate themselves? Yeah, I think um, although people say online is particularly good from an educational point of view, you know, you can, if you've got water on the knee, you can look up and you get a good celery, celery capsule. If you've got um, an illness or a cold, you know what might or might not work. That opportunity in that health, natural, medicinal area is going to be very strong in person-to-person -person contact. And if I take, again, not marketing one of my businesses, but the Flannery's business, we have three naturopaths in each of the stores. And they are very busy people and they provide advice and help and education. And I think that's where we've got an advantage over Woolies. And Woolies and Coles do not have um, the level of trust from customers, particularly in this organic natural space. And, and so the opportunity there for, for small companies to do it. And you look at some of the Romeos and some of the IGA stores now are really building a, a good business um, out, of, um, out of being able to sell gourmet and unique products and provide that with specialist advice, whether it be the, the cheese specialist or the seafood specialist. That should be what Woolies and Coles own. But they've actually, in my view, 
uh, gone downhill in the last few years and trying to own that space. And it's been given away to good businesses like Harris Farm and some of the good IGA stores that are, that are around. Yeah, we... So that's what... Go on, mate. That's why I'm fascinated with what you're just saying is because I've got a 17-year-old girl and, you know, and she's about to turn 18 and I thought I was going to take her to David Jones to, you know, to maybe, you know, buy some great outfits. But she sort of wisely told me, Dad, you know, I can go online and get all that a lot cheaper. Um, I would have thought that in things like Meyer and David Jones, it would have, to your point, there would have been the need for people to give that specialist advice in terms of fashion rather than just going online. So wh why do you think David Jones and Meyer found that transition difficult? Yeah, I think David Jones and Meyer have become the sort of whipping boy for bricks and mortar. They're still doing $4.5 billion in turnover in the Australian marketplace. So for all of the bad bits that everybody talks about them, about not not having the dignity, uh, not moving fast enough in the digital space, having poor customer service. There's still a significant chunk of change being done in both mm. stores. But I do agree with you. I think, um, you know, the one thing that took us from minus 66 to plus 280 million at Maya was our ability to increase personal shopping, to have um, some fantastic world-class designers in our store uh, that provide that advice, to have fashion shows and events, to have theatre in store, to have... Uh, great events at the race meeting to really had what I would call that art of, of theatre uh, and retail entertainment. And so I think more recently it's been lost as cost reductions hit hard and, you know, you don't have that sort of celebrity presence anymore. And so naturally people like your daughter are going to say, well, why would I want to go to the old fuddy-duddy store when I can go online and buy something you know, and if it doesn't if it doesn't fit or it's the wrong colour, I can return it. So I think they've become masters of their own destiny at uh, Myra and David Jones, and it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy that they're not going to attract the wrong young customer because they've been too focused on reducing cost, reducing range, and not using what was the epitome of department stores, which was theatre, entertainment, the piano player in the middle of David Jones, having uh, somebody that can give you advice, that can style you, that can personally tell you what cosmetic to wear right the way through to what dress goes with what shoes. And I sum that up, Bernie, really in the word of uh, storytelling. That was the art of storytelling to go that experience in those stores. That you were, you know, you were being told a story. You were, you were experiencing that, and, and uh, they, they have certainly walked away from that. And the other part that I really loved, and just what you're talking through, is the health and well-being. I believe that's the next space. In actual fact, Mark, I mean, your daughter, uh, who, who I know quite well, obviously, uh, you know, she'd be she'd be prefer you to take her shopping uh, to the uh, health and well-being store and and buying the latest, uh, you know, the latest trendy foods and stuff uh, because of you know being a, you know going to the gym and and, and eating well wouldn't you wouldn't you agree no definitely and uh, it, it definitely uh, makes you feel a bit older when you, you, you're getting a lot of advice from a 17 turning 18 year old girl who, who obviously knows a lot more about the future than you do so I'm sure you've seen that yourself Bernie yeah my word I think uh, my young guy's uh, 31 and he's a bit of a fitness nut and now he eats healthy food and um, you know doesn't drink very, very seldom drinks and does all the, the bad ill things that, that we do and eat the wrong food, etc. I don't think he's ever had fast food meal either. And, you know, that's a very different mindset today. But he doesn't shop at Woolies and he doesn't shop at Coles. Um, you know, he'll, he'll go to a Harris farm or he'll buy something online or he'll get a, a box that comes to him every week with different products in it. And I think that's, um, you know, that's the nature of why I think Woolies and Coles have perhaps not got the inside running for the future. You know, people don't trust them and, and I was in a, one of those stores um, over the weekend 
and uh, they've, they've opened an organic section. And in the cheese area, there's no shredded organic cheese. So they've put a standard range of cheese in there just to make it up. And that's where they break the rules. That's where they, they don't understand that you've got to be pure and you've got to be organic and you've got to have the advice. And I think, um, you know, although we've got macro and we've got uh, you know, various ranges being pushed in that space, I think there's an enormous miscue at the moment in, that's, that's going to be quite costly for those major retailers going forward. So, Bernie, there's a there's a new film that's uh, come out today called Yesterday, which the premise of it is that there's a, a guy who wakes up, he's just been hit by a bus, and he realises he's the only one who can uh, who can recall the Beatles. So he uh, embarks this journey on, on sort of ripping off the, the whole Beatles back catalogue to, to make himself great. If you could look back and uh, when you were young, knowing what you know now, what would have you done differently? I think if I, when I first started my career, and a lot of um, your younger listeners wouldn't be aware of this, but the market leaders were Composite Buyers and David Jones and IGA and Foursquare, um, uh, IGA, Foursquare, Man in the Moon, uh, Tom the Cheap, Jack the Slasher, very strong IGAs trading under a plethora of names, and it was dominated by the independent trade. And I think the independent trade, um, in a very self-defeatist way, made some decisions that cost them that market share and cost them and gave a free kick to, to Woolies and Coles. There was an incredibly fragmented business. And it wasn't really till Andrew Reiser came on the scene at uh, David's Holdings that he was able to, um, which then became, uh, of course, uh, partly owned by South African. He, he made the decision then to bring them together under a more unified fighting team. I think if that would have taken place in the sort of 80s, we'd have seen a very different environment and, and probably the Woolies and Coles would have been maybe a 10 or 15% market share each. You'd have then had 15 or 16 other major players um, in the in the country. And if I look at what uh, the South South Australian independents have managed to do over a long period of time, and some of the early WA independents, they knew that there was a great niche for them to establish a quality food offering and dominate within their local environment. And there still is. And I think we'll see the rebirth of some really good independent stores um, and I think Harris Farm is a great example that can cater for the local environment with a unique product offering. So I think going forward, if there wasn't a Woolies or Coles, just as there wouldn't be a yesterday, what we'd probably see is 15 or 16 options for Coca-Cola and Unilever to go and knock on the door, which they'd love, rather than have two big ugly beasts that they have, they've got to deal with at the moment. <laughs> I, uh, I would agree with that. And I uh, actually, as a young uh, budding uh, account manager coming... Uh, I must say, I've got to testify. I remember the old Composite and uh, David Holding trade shows, trade fairs. They were uh, they were big back then, and uh, they were uh, they were big uh, organisations. And look, uh, just uh, taking away from the FMCG feel for a minute, just a little bit of, about Bernie. Um, you know, what, what are the things that you? Know, what do you do in your spare time, mate? What do you? What's, what's your interests? What's your hobbies? I do read a lot, and if I, in fact, it's funny. I was on the uh, Skype hook up with. Uh, lady that I mentor that's in um, Canada, works for Walmart in Canada now, and we were chatting and and she, I, and she asked the, the question sort of, you know, what should I be doing? And I said, well, people forget to read. I mean, you, you, you're Googling, you're looking at things on social media, you look at, you know, what what's happening in the world, uh, the small talk, what's in the New Idea magazine, you know, what's happening with maths, all that sort of modern day stuff, which is important. But I always say to her, just take 10 minutes of that time and Google um, food or FMCG or what's happening at Selfridges. And self-learning is now so easy because of the fact that you've, you've got 
access to the World Wide Web. And so a long answer to the question, I'd spend a lot of time just self-educating and self-learning in looking what's happening in the marketplace. I mean, I've been studying at the moment about um, naked food and, and alleviating plastic. Uh, now, I didn't know enough about it um, until it started to come up in some of our focus group at Flannery's. But let me tell you now, I could comfortably talk a little bit about it because I've educated myself in it and, and understand what the pluses and minuses and what it means. So I think to some extent, I spend a lot of time self-educating myself. I've got four very active grandkids that keep me very young. And so uh, that's a, another sort of part. But I've, I've sort of haven't had the opportunity to play too much in the regard to sport or, or anything in that sense as I've been busy. But now maybe with a, um, a couple of workloads less and sort of sitting on four boards and, and uh, not traveling as much, it might be an opportunity to, to get back and enjoy a few things in that sense going forward. But I've, I've said that before. I've retired three times. Um, and once you've, you're bought up with that 60 hour a week, it's pretty hard to break that nexus. Do you go through a process? You talked about sitting on four boards. I'm sure there'd be lots of boards trying to clamour to get you on board, so to speak. Uh, do you go through a sort of uh, a criteria to ensure that the, the board that you sit on fits your sort of personal values? Um, yes, I think the most important thing to me is you when you get a little bit uh, older and a little bit greyer hair, um, you want to work with nice people and you don't need to put up with dicks. You don't need to put up with people that have got a, an arrogance or treat people unfairly or, unre or unrelenting and, and ruthless. So to some extent, the first thing that I will do, and in fact, I did it last week, was spend you know, six or eight hours with the people that run the company and the other board members to make sure that I was really comfortable in that environment. The second thing is you've got to be able to add value. I mean, I don't sit on any listed company boards deliberately. For the simple reason that if you're sitting on an AMP or a Commonwealth Bank or a Coca-Cola, it's all governance and signing things and directors and officers insurance. And, you know, a board's job should be to assist and mentor management, assist and mentor the strategy. And you can't do that in a public company. And so private companies provide a greater opportunity. So be able to influence things, be able to work with the management and work with people that you like, I think, is the sort of criteria that I would put forward. Thank you for in that, that insight. And I, I guess that probably, you know, the, the time's actually flown. So we're actually uh, well, well and truly on, on the money on time and uh, probably a little bit over. But it's been a great uh, discussion, Bernie. You've really, uh, I think, been quite open and quite transparent about, you know, your opinions and thoughts. Mate, what, what do you see as your, the next steps and, and or the, uh, you know, the, 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 the next phase and journey for Bernie Brooks? I've been incredibly lucky. Sometimes I've created that luck, sometimes I've been lucky. But, you know, to win the, the Joe Berry Award, to win what was called then the Uncle Ben Scholarship and get overseas study tours for both of uh, those businesses, to have the opportunity to set up a business in India, to spend two years setting up offices in China, and then more recently spend three years in Africa uh, across 16 countries running retail of routes and West Farmers. Um, I've been incredibly fortuitous. And so, therefore... The first part is giving back, as I've been doing with the United Nations, and certainly doing by giving back into the Joe Berry Award. And certainly, I think that gives me um, a great degree of comfort and give back to a lot of the younger people in the business. Now, they're throwaway lines, they're cheap lines, but ultimately, I'm quite confident in saying that the work I'm doing in some of those areas is getting some great results with some good young executives. The Joe Berry Award's a great example of that. So continue to give back, continue to support. And at the same time, I think I've got a bit of making up to do with um, 
with my wife and kids and, and grandkids of where I've spent so much time away. So I'm also doing a bit of what I call guilt catch up in that area as well. <laughs> well, that's true. We all do that, I think, in our corporate career paths, but yours is uh, definitely uh, um, definitely probably taking you away from your family over that, over that journey. But uh, I'm sure they're very proud of you. And as your dad would have been back uh, telling him that you're on the board at Ingham uh, back in that time too. So uh, look, um, Mark, is there anything, uh, you, any other questions in closing uh, you might have for Bernie? Uh, no, no more questions, Bernie, but just a, a statement to say that I remember in 1997, before the age of PowerPoint, you ignited a crowd of retailers and suppliers, and I was a youngster enthralled by your presentation. So the thought that I've, that I've been able to you know, interview you some 20 years later has been a big thrill. So thanks for your time, Bernie. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. And uh, I'd certainly uh, want to close with, uh, I've had, been lucky enough to spend a bit, little bit of time with you over the last few years through the Joe Berry Awards and being so, obviously on the board at the ASMCA with, with Keith. And, and, and Bernie is the patron uh, of the Joe Berry and uh, inaugural winner. And I look, you know, to be the first in, in bringing the FMCG uh, industry its its own podcast, which which is what Mark and I have, have tried to do uh, with Superior, that to have you as our final guest uh, for our season one, I don't think we could have really uh, uh, matched that. And uh, and for you to be here today, and and for our listeners to have been able to get some real insight into your thinking and your disruption moments in, in your career path, has been absolutely outstanding. So appreciate your time and. Uh, and uh, without any, uh, yeah. So everyone will uh, we will be sh- uh, sort of closing off for this year and uh, and um, or our season one. And uh, appreciate everyone that's been on board and listening. So Bernie, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Well, everyone, what an amazing podcast to hear from such a legend within our uh, the food and beverage industry from uh, Bernie. So, uh, Mark, what were your key takeouts from today? Well, getting it down to three key takeaways is really difficult. His transparency to his success, and more importantly, his failures, was a thrill to be part of. Yet the three things that stood out for me were you know, his love of big corporates and his ability to disrupt in big corporates, where a lot of people feel you can't disrupt in big corporates. You know, just the way he rattled off what are the key elements of building an A-team. You know, he just, off the cuff, just delivered beautifully. And his advice, you know, to that ever-challenging environment about developing alignment between suppliers and retailers, I think were a lot of gems that I'm sure a lot of our listeners can take heed to. What about yourself? Mate, I think uh, there's a lot that uh, our listeners can take away from today. Um, You know, the ones that sort of stand out for me, um, again, you know, everyone's got a different opinion on when you listen to podcasts, what what resonates for them. So, you know, definitely to, to wind it right back uh, was the magic uh, the magic moment that he had to to be able to sit down with his father, um, obviously, who worked at uh, Ingham's when they first arrived, uh, and um, and to the fact that he was sitting on the board, and for him to be able to share that with his father, I, I could see in uh, just body Bernie's body action the um, the emotion that actually that meant to him. Um, look, I really felt that what I loved was the mentor. Mentors are like a filing cabinet. 
I think that's so true. You know, we, we, we learn from so many people along our journey. We really just need to be able to, you know, to put that away. You don't know when you're going to, need to, you're going to need to use it. But more importantly, to have that catalog there for you to be able to draw on in, in times of uh, learning, in times of challenge, in times of managerial um, growth. So, uh, you know, they were, that was two of the things. And, and, and definitely, I, I really agree with the bricks and mortar piece. I think Australians... Really, we are a shopping. Uh, we're shopping by nature. Uh, we definitely. Uh, I don't know how much the digital is going to continue to grow. I mean, we, it's it's going to grow certainly over the next five years. But is it going to become fifty percent of our purchasing habits? And I I don't think so. So you know, for me, I think we sell. Uh, you know, as a, a society here in Australia, we're we're still a bricks and mortar place. So. Look, without you, know, I, I really just you know, would like to thank our, our guest today, um, Mr. Bernie Brooks, uh, uh, AM Australian medalist. Yeah, look, we couldn't have done it without the production expertise of Young Gun, Blake Labina. Yeah, look, many thanks coming you know, into our final uh, podcast uh, with our creative uh, partner, Ant May from Ant Designs. Uh, if you haven't uh, seen his websites and his design on his websites, you gotta you got to get on his get on his. Get on his website and uh, and have a look at him, and uh, there's, he's got some great stuff. So uh, I'd really uh, really encourage you to have a, a look at Ant. And um, look, that, you know that brings our uh, that's our final episode for the season uh, for our season one, which has been a, a real pl- pleasure in bringing uh, such inspirational stories to to you guys, the listeners. Um, Look, and a big shout out to not only the listeners, but the feedback we've had. We've had some amazing feedback of, uh, you know, um, how they'd like to hear things a little bit differently. Uh, some of the some of the stories that have really resonated for them. And um, even some of our new clients that have you know, come on board and allowed us to enter their organisations uh, with the sole purpose of really wanting to understand disruption and, uh, and, 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 ha- and the ways that they can go about applying that to their sales departments. So... You know, look, if you'd like to uh, understand a bit more, um, you'll just shout out to us, uh, you know, um, through our website at uh, www.superiorsales.com and, you know, Mark or I would love to uh, catch up and hear a bit of what you you or your organisation we could bring to you. Yes, it's been a real blast, you know, both doing the podcast but also, as you mentioned, you know, doing the keynotes and workshops that have been born from this podcast. I really look forward to season two, which we'll bring later on the year. Till then.